Uh, and, and it's, of course, going to lead into chapter 2, which is going to heavily focus on what these last days are going to look like. It's going to deal a lot with the tribulation period, some stuff leading up to it as well. And so we'll get into that once we get into chapter 2. We'll take our time through that. Um, and as well, if uh, over the next few weeks, once we get into chapter 2, if you get a question about something like this, do me a favor, write it down, stick it in one of these boxes for questions here if it's related to, to this. And what I'll try to do is to, to answer it as best as I can through it because um, I know just I, I w- it's impossible not to be able to cover everything that, that needs covering or could be covered. Um, but anyways, let's read verse 8 through 12. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him according to the grace of our Lord uh, excuse me, according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we jump in here, verse 8 through 12, uh, we're going to see that the divine judgment is explained to be not only for retribution against those that have rebelled, but for the reward of those that belong to Christ. When we think of judgment, and especially the end times judgment, the last judgments that there will be uh, before the eternal state for both believers and unbelievers, when we think about judgment, our natural inclination is to think about something that is not good. Who here likes to be judged? Okay, right. What well, I thought, who here likes to judge others? Okay, we, y'all just don't want, I was going to say, you just don't want to raise your hand, right? <laughs> we all do it. Hey, y'all do it like I do when you walk through Walmart, all right? You've judged me in Walmart, I've judged you in Walmart, okay? Uh, but when we think about this, we naturally think about judgment. We naturally think about something that is not good. Now, let's understand this. For the unbeliever, judgment is not going to be good at all. There's not going to be a moment of goodness in that for them. There's not going to be a moment of grace or relief in that for them. What we're going to find, though, is for the believer, there is not some sort of retribution for God to go, all right, well, yeah, I saved you. I'm going to keep you out of hell, but I'm going to bop you over the head so hard for the next thousand years just to straighten you out, right? We don't believe that whatsoever. For the Christian, our judgment, yes, we shall be tried, and yes, we shall give answer to our motivation of our heart, and and we're going to have much wood, hay, and stubble that's going to be burned up in our life. Nevertheless, for the believer, our final judgment is a place of reward. It is a place of rejoicing because it leads us into our eternal reward, which ultimately Christ is our reward and the reward of all those that believe. Uh, As we see here, uh, we get some very uh, good details about what this judgment is going to look like specifically and how God is going to exact vengeance. Uh, and, and, And notice this here. He begins, "...in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God." Now, there are those that look at this and they say, well, it's not going to be a literal fire. Think about this. That is absolutely baloney, first of all. So we have to just go ahead and address that. There are those who say, well, God's not really going to punish everyone in such a manner or in such a way. You know, there will just be this, and we'll cover a little bit of this this morning. There are are certain groups of people that believe in annihilationism, which is where you'll be judged and then just annihilated, that hell isn't actually eternal and that punishment isn't everlasting. Well, if punishment for the unbeliever is not eternal and everlasting, then why would we think that, uh, that heaven, the reward for believers, would be eternal or everlasting? Either eternal and everlasting means eternal and everlasting for both groups, or it does not mean it for either group. Does that make sense? And so we've got to understand that God is not simply going to poof and vanish the, the unbeliever away. What we find is that this is going to be an eternal punishment. And you say, 
Why is this such an emphasis? Why does this sound so severe? Now let's think about this. Just listen to the wording and think about how severe this judgment sounds. Flaming fire. Does that sound good? No. Right? Flaming fire. Vengeance. Uh, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Right? Those are very severe phrases, aren't they? Very severe descriptions of what this judgment is going to be for the unbeliever. And there are those today who question severely that uh, the goodness of God or the love of God and saying, well, how could someone who says that they love the world, uh, a God who says that they love the world, punish sin with such ferocity and fierceness and, and, and justice and even wrath as we see with flaming fire and, you know, and eternal destruction, everlasting destruction? The answer is simple. It is not an answer, though, that the lost world likes. And let's be honest, nor is it an answer that you and I in our own flesh like because we don't want to rationalize it in such a way. This is why by faith we look at God's Word and we realize who God is, that God is holy and just, He is righteous, He is love, He is light, He extends patience and loving kindness and mercy to thousands and thousands of thousands, right? But what we find is that God's justice must be satisfied. Now Jesus Christ paid the price on Calvary to satisfy the wrath of God. However, the, the wrath of God is only satisfied for those that are in Christ. And that's going to be a focus here in this passage as well. Uh, and, and we see that, that being in Him, we find that now the wrath of God against me was placed on Christ so that I might receive reward, that I might receive His grace, that I might receive His mercy. But for the unbeliever, for those who, as we'll see in this passage, know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, wrath is still very much available for them as well. Just as assured today as salvation is available for them, that they are able to be saved by the goodness and faithfulness of Almighty God, yes, we must understand that their salvation is available. We must understand this, that vengeance will come, flaming fire, and it will be just. Not one soul in heaven is there because they deserve it. Not one soul in hell is there because they don't deserve it. We've got to understand both of those concepts. Those of us that are in Christ who are on our way to heaven, we did nothing to earn that, right? It's all Him. However, everyone that is on their way to hell today has earned every drop of judgment forever. One sin against an infinite holy God is worthy of an infinite destruction. The reason why we are uncomfortable with judgment like this and the way it's described, and the reason why especially the lost world is certainly this way, or many progressive Christians uh, today would be so uncomfortable with this idea of judgment is because we simply want to believe that God will just make it all go away or that He'll somehow just overlook these sins. Or it comes down to this, we don't think our sin is as bad as it is because we don't think that God is as godly as He is. If we understood, and, and what I mean by understand is this, that we cannot fathom all that God is. However, if we believe God is who He has revealed Himself to be, we can't help but then attach the fact that every sin deserves an everlasting punishment, even the very smallest and simplest. Right? McDonald writes, The flaming fire may be a reference to the Shekinah, the glory cloud, which symbolizes God's presence, or it may be a picture of fiery judgment in which it is about to be unleashed. Probably it is the latter is what it seems to be. When God takes vengeance, it is not vindictiveness, but righteous recompense. Now you and I, when we say that we want to take vengeance, normally that's being vindictive. 
Uh, normally that's trying to take things and matters into our own hands and trying to get back at someone who got at us first, right? Or maybe they haven't gotten at us that bad, but they say, you know, all right, they twisted our nose and now we'll black their eye, right? Uh, and so what we find, though, is that God and His movement of justice and judgment and just judgment is not ever acting ungodly or unjust or immoral. And those today, it is quite the popular argument to claim that God is acting immoral by punishing those who have lived immorally or have gone against Him. There is no immorality in God. There is no sin in Him. There is no lying in Him. There is no changing in Him. So He is who He is. And if we understand Him to be, at bare minimum, the very uh, picture of perfection in all of His attributes and characteristics and deeds as well, if all that He does is perfect and wonderful and awesome, then... We have to understand that us as flesh, well, we can't ever compare to that, which is why we need Christ, which is why we need to be in Christ, and which is why as well today, as we see the severity of this punishment, this is all the more reason why we must be preaching the gospel today. All are responsible to respond to the gospel. Every single one. Now, in this, he says, in the flaming fire, uh, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and they uh, and that uh, obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this uh, before we get too far. Obey not the gospel. You go, well, preacher, I thought that the gospel was an invitation. Oh, it, it absolutely is. But it is a command as well. The gospel is not merely an invitation. It is an imperative. It, it is an imperative command that you must repent and believe the gospel. Yet, at the same time, it is an invitation. The two are both true. Because, yes, the gospel is openly inviting all to come to Christ. And they must come by grace through faith. Uh, not of themselves, not of works, lest any man should boast, because we would. But then we find, though, it is in a command. There is no other option. There is no other alternative. But how can they call on one that they don't know, that they've never heard of? This is why preachers must go. This is why we must live as missionaries in our day-to-day -day life, proclaiming the gospel, because every single one that is alive today is responsible to heed its call. Now, there are two different groups of people here in verse number 8 as well. This is not merely just giving two different descriptions of one group of people, but it is describing in one sense one group, and that is the lost world. But then it breaks the lost soul down into two groups of people. Either one, those that know not God, and then those that obey not the gospel. There are two groups of unbelievers who will be judged on the day of revealing, which is the second coming, not the rapture, when Christ comes in all of His power and all of His glory, and we get to come with Him. One... Them that know not God are those who have rejected the knowledge of the true God as revealed by the general revelation, but have not heard the gospel. These are those that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. These are those that have never uh, gotten to uh, hear the gospel preached to them. These are those that have only received general revelation. What is general, general revelation? It is what we call in the theological world uh, creation and conscience. It is the fact that we see that a creation demands that there is a creator. And then as well, a conscience that my heart within me, though I may, uh, though I may be a, a pygmy in Africa or, or I may be born right here in Carroll County, uh, it, it, I see that I must give an answer to the one who has created all these things. And within my heart, I know that there are certain things that are immoral and wrong. You notice this, right? You don't have to teach a, a child certain things. Normally, you don't have to sit down with a, a three-year-old and teach them that murdering is wrong. Right? Now you have to start teaching them about lying and things because it does not take too long and they start to learn lying and covetousness and pride. That is a sinful nature just welling itself up. And what we see, though, is that there are some things that we know across the board, right? In the world today, across the board, 
from tribal groups to a society such as ours that would uh, declare ourselves to be sort of at least in, in past time Judeo-Christian in values, but a place that has law and order, right? We understand that lying is not good. Stealing others' property is not good. It is not right. It is not a good thing to do. Right? It is not a just thing to do. We understand that, that murdering another innocent life or taking innocent life it is not good. And so these truths are across the board. Yet what we find, though, is that even keeping those truths will not save a soul. The hard reality and the harsh reality is this, is that every soul in the world today, whether they have ever heard the name of Jesus Christ or not, must bow down to Him. There is, unfortunately, and it has become popularized, uh, it became popularized in the, in the 60s or so with a lot of uh, a big-time evangelists that came about and started promoting this uh, and started uh, sort of taking a compromise and saying, well, those who have never heard of Jesus, well, they'll be saved. Let me ask you this. Do we find anywhere in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, where anyone can be saved outside of Christ? Not once. As a matter of fact, we find the opposite evidence, that without Jesus Christ, there is no possibility of salvation, which is why the gospel must be preached. You say, well, that's not fair. They've never heard. They have seen the general revelation. They are without excuse. You can read Romans 1 and 2, both Jew and Gentile alike. And then read Romans 3 and you'll find they have all gone out of the way. They have all become unprofitable. Their, their mouths and throats are open sepulchers. They're full of death. They, they seek destruction. They are still yet in the flesh. They are still responsible to the gospel. And so instead of us responding in a way where we read verse 8 and we go, well, those that have never heard, why would God do such? We must understand this. If we remember, none of us that are going to heaven deserve it and everyone that is going to hell does, then what we'll see is this. Our hearts should be shattered and not angry at God. Our hearts should be broken over the fact that there are lost and dying souls throughout the world. This is exactly why we have faith promise missions, by the way. Can everyone in here today drop what they're doing and fly to another country and preach the gospel? Me either, right? And so this is why we send missionaries. This is why we give. This is why we uh, give to those who are called by God to go. And this is why we who are also called by God to go in the world that we live today and to be salt and to be light and to proclaim the gospel to every creature that is around us, uh, first of all, in our families, in our homes, uh, in our neighborhoods, right? Uh, in our workplaces, in our schools, and, and things like this. This is why our hearts, as we see the reality of this judgment, our hearts should be broken and our hearts should desire all the more in these days to proclaim Christ's truth. But the second group of people that is acknowledged here is not only those that know not God, but those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't really obey what you've never heard. The idea here of this is that those that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are those that have heard the gospel but have rejected it in unbelief. The gospel is not merely an invitation but a command to repent and believe. And what we have to remember is this this morning. Where there is more revelation, there is more responsibility. And so for those of us who know Christ, and as He has taught us throughout the years, there is certainly a more responsibility, right? Certainly, who, who is more responsible? The, the saint who is, uh, has been saved for 30 years and discipled and has made other disciples as a Sunday school teacher or a deacon perhaps, right? Uh, or the one who got saved yesterday afternoon out of a, a drunken stupor. Which one do we think has more? Well, this one's got more revelation. 
And therefore, this one has much more responsibility uh, to God. Now, this one has to grow, but this one has to teach this one and be there for this one and help this one through the baby stage and, uh, the, well, really the, the infant stage, uh, the baby stage, the toddler stage, the everything else stage, because it takes time to progress in the Christian life. Ultimately, we don't really progress in the Christian life until uh, or have reached full progression until we reach heaven's shores in the first place. But the idea of more revelation, more responsibility, I want to take a little bit of time on that this morning. Hold your place here, and I want you to turn with me uh, to uh, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Now here Jesus is uh, preaching by parables to the, the unbelieving Jews. And Peter comes, and, and he's there. He's heard the teaching. And in verse 41 to 48, here's what takes place. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the uh, men's servants and maidens and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in the sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now, let's pause for a moment. In context, Jesus is speaking here to the Jewish people. The Jewish people had gone this route where they had, uh, had forgotten the coming of Christ. They had missed it, if you will. But even more so, when he did come, they missed it in unbelief and rejection. Now, there's coming a day when he does return again, and they will believe, and we praise God for such but as he goes and he gives us these principles about what this means with, with this revelation and this being a good steward, he says uh, then in verse number 46, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in asunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. Notice that. I would put it this way. To some degree, hell is going to be hotter for others than it will be for some. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Turn with me to Romans 12. Uh, excuse me, Romans number 2. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. He has dealt with the Gentiles, and now he comes to show that the Jews, that they are as well guilty before God. But in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, he gets through the principles of God's judgment and his righteous judgment upon all. Verse number 12, he says, For as many as have sinned without the law. Well, who are those at this time without the law? Those are the Gentile people. All right, The Jews had received the law of God. He says, For as many as have sinned without the law of God also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Notice that. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. This is the idea of conscience and that the law of God written upon our hearts. We see, he says, uh, which when the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile ex accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We see the coming judgment, we see the denial, we see all these things. 
We see the severity of those who have rejected and those who have heard, those who have not. We see sort of this, uh, this difference. And one last place, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Well, praise God, that's a good thing. Jesus does not have to come and die again. Why? Because just uh, prior we see so uh, chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him uh, shall appear the second coming without sin unto salvation. Right? We see that he has come. Uh, back uh, in, in the end of chapter 9, we see that he has come once and he has died once and we need not a new fresh sacrifice. He then says, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fire indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much more sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God. And hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So here's the idea. How much more will the punishment be for those that have heard and reject? For those that know who the Son of God is and reject him as a Son of God. Jew or Gentile at this point. The, the punishment remains the same. And so for those who have heard the gospel, and this is why it is so dangerous today, and we've got to understand that there are folks in churches who are still yet lost, who have a, a false conversion, a false understanding of the gospel, a false idea of who God is and who they are. And we see how much hotter, how much more awful is judgment going to be for those who have lived and said, ah, I can accuse and excuse. I can say how moral I am. I can say, well, I've been baptized. I've done this. Think how much more for those who say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? Didn't I go to this church in your name? And it will not matter. What an awful reality. And we spend time looking at that this morning because we have to see the responsibility of all of mankind, but as well that our revelation that God has given to us, that we have received by faith, it gives us more responsibility to do what? To look for His appearing, to listen for His, his call, but as well to preach the gospel everywhere we go. You say, well, I'm not called to be a preacher. Well, you're called to share the gospel. If you've been saved, you have a story. You've got a testimony of God's grace that has saved you. You've got tools and resources at your disposal with devotionals and booklets and tracts and a multitude of things that you can simply go and hand to someone. There is a way. We must simply make this decision uh, to be used of God to get the gospel out there. The judgment of God against unbelievers will be, notice this in verse number 8 as well, Inflaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The judgment of God against unbelievers will be everlasting without end or annihilation as some falsely teach. Unfortunately, we have the Seventh-day Adventists today that teach that and, and several others. Uh, we think even... Uh, the Catholic Church would hold to such because you have purgatory that is an option and then eventually you can try to get your way out of there. Uh, but there is no idea of purgatory in the Bible. There's no place of a holding place now or some in-between state between heaven and hell. If there's an in-between state between heaven and hell, we're living in it, right? For the lost world, this is as close to heaven as they will get. And for the, uh, for the believer, this is as close to hell we will get. And so we praise God for that. As we look, though, Thomas writes, just as endless life belongs to Christians, endless destruction belongs to those opposed to Christ. 
Now, as we see this, uh, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction? Now, when you and I think of destruction, we think of a finalized destroyed, right? But think of it this way. Everlasting destruction, it is not being annihilated forever, but rather it is facing destruction, uh, a, a fruit of judgment forever and forever without ever being all the way destroyed, right? It is constantly being crushed, constantly facing the fire. The fire will never go out. The darkness will never uh, burst open into light in hell. We must see that when we have descriptions of hell, even by the Lord Jesus, where he says there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, what does that gnashing of teeth mean? The gnashing of teeth is not a, a gritting of pain but the idea that was used for the Jewish people, we see it later on in the book of Acts when Stephen had preached uh, and had been uh, doing this work and it says they gnashed their teeth at him. It's done out of anger. Those that will be in hell and will face this judgment will not be sorry for one moment. They will be angry. They will hate the God that they did not believe on. They will curse him. And the judgment will still remain. And even if they were somehow, after 10,000 years, to come to their senses perhaps, and to do all that they could to get to heaven, they will never quench the flames. They will never reach any sort of relief. But for the believer, we will never experience the touch of an everlasting flame. We will never experience what it's like to go thirsty or hungry again. We will no longer remember what it's like to have an ache or a pain. We praise the Lord for such. Right? We'll never know what it's like anymore to have daylight savings time. <laughs> Notice this. Flaming fire see this punished with everlasting destruction, but notice he says, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. <clears throat> the idea that chapter 1, verse 9 conveys is not merely that the disobedient will be excluded from the Lord's presence, but that from this presence, the everlasting destruction comes forth. Moreover, the destruction they suffer will be from the majesty of His power, the majesty of His visible glory of God, and it is synonymous with His presence. Christ Himself called the Lord of glory, while on the other hand, glory at times describes God's power. The present verse highlights precisely this idea. The Lord Jesus comes in the divine power and is able to execute judgment. The majesty of his power, the glory of his power, is both the measure and the source of this judgment. Paul gears this long discussion about the final judgment, verses 5-10, through 10, to encourage the Thessalonian believers in their sufferings for the faith and to assure them that their justice will be truly done. Now, many times, here's what we do. We preach, and it's not all the way right, and it's not all the way wrong, so please hear me out there, okay? And to be honest, you could look at this, and folks, either side can begin to split hairs, and you can start to ostracize someone that splits the hair a little bit different than you do. But here's what we find. The, the grammar of this passage is not merely a departing from the presence where you'll never know the presence of God, but rather it is this, you'll never know the presence of God in the way in which we were designed to. Everyone that has ever been created was created by God to know what? To know his presence, to enjoy his presence. When God made Adam and Eve, what were they able to enjoy in the Garden of Eden? 
Not just the fruit. The fruit wasn't half of it. The fruit was good, but it wasn't as good as the walking with the Lord. It was not as good as the presence of God. What do we find then for the believer that is promised in Revelation 21 and 22? Uh, a future that is even better than, the, uh, than um, the, uh, a, a new Eden. This is a, a new city, a new heaven, a new earth uh, where the Lord himself will dwell with us. What do we find? What is the key? What is the focal point of Revelation 21 and 22? Is it all these things that believers get to enjoy? No, it is the presence of God. There's no need of the, the sun, the stars, the moon. Why? Because the Lamb is the light thereof. There's no need for uh, uh, anything because everything that is needed flows from the throne of the Lamb. So we find that the focal point is the Lamb. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who becomes and is the light of the world and provider for all things and the sustainer of, of, of life for all time and eternity. But notice this, the presence of God is very key and important throughout all of Scripture. If you remember back to Exodus, the children of Israel, they show up and they meet at Sinai. And what happens? And Moses is about to go up and he's about to get the Ten Commandments before he breaks them and before they fall into idolatry down there with the golden calf. For all that takes place, what happens? God overwhelms the mountain, the cloud, the fire. They've seen it all thus far. They've seen the presence of God that has led them that has protected them from the rear there at the, the Red Sea, that has been in their midst, that has provided manna every morning for them. And now they see this mountain, and you, do you remember what they say to Moses? They say, Moses, we want you to talk to us and not him, lest we die. They were absolutely horrified and terrified of the presence of God. They knew the severity, even had God had spoken to them and, and he told Moses, hey, you need to let them know, do not bring their, their cattle or their sheep or, or, or anything or anybody. Don't let them come up on the mountain lest I come upon them. What does that mean? I come upon them and, and shoo them away? No. It's to come upon them and fire and judgment to consume them. As he did throughout. Uh, there was one who, uh, we think of uh, uh, Eli's sons, uh, who, um, uh, who uh, had, had worshipped with false fire. Um, and, and what happened to them? Consumed, right? And so we find that throughout the Bible, God's fire has always represented His holiness, His judgment, His presence. And it's a good thing to those who walk with Him and obey Him, but to those who do not, His presence is a fearful thing. We didn't get to it all, but there in Hebrews chapter 10, we see that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is the reality. It is a fearful thing to fall into his hands if you do not know him. Oh, but how a blessed thing it is to fall into his hands when you do know him. For you can trust his hands. Because his hands will hold you fast forever and forever. Those that know him. God's presence is an awesome thing. And yet for the unbeliever, an awful thing. It is not merely just this departure from His presence where they will never just, they'll just wander on their own in hell. We have to remember, God is the very one who will do the punishing. The devil is not assigned to uh, be the punisher for all time and eternity. Matter of fact, he will be punished for all time and eternity. Well, who's going to do it? It is the Lord Himself. From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Those who will experience everlasting destruction will do so at the present awful and righteous hand of God. They will know only the horror of His judgment without ever knowing the kindness, goodness, peacefulness, and rest of His presence as the believers will for all eternity.
Now, the Bible has to paint such a picture for this because, one, we have to not simply be scared from hell, but rather we should be more fearful to fall into the hands of God than we are of some fire. Because it is the Lord's flames in the first place. Now, remember, hell was not created for bad people. It's created for the devil and his angels. And yet we find that those who go his way and have been seduced by him and obeyed him and not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they too shall be punished there as well alongside him. That is Satan's goal. I believe he's smart enough to know that in the end he will lose, but he certainly wants to take as many with him as possible. As we see this, the second coming will not only bring the retribution against unbelievers, but the reward. And there is this retribution that is so heavily seen, but for you and I, their retribution is our reward. For them, the presence of the Lord becomes a retribution, a time of vengeance, a time of of fear and horror forever and forever. But for you and I, the presence of the Lord will be welcomed like an old friend. It will be welcomed as we get to enter into the presence of the Lord, our Father, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. We will get to see the One who was pierced for our transgressions, who bore our sins and our sorrows and our griefs, who by His stripes we are healed and reconciled to God. We will get to see the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. We will get to see Jesus Christ. We will know His presence and enjoy His presence forever and forever. Heaven will not be boring. There are some folks who have professed Christ and and, and they've asked questions of, well, is it just going to be one long church service? Because if so, that's just going to be boring. Christians should not think that there is a boring church service. Now let me go ahead and pause for a moment. There have been some boring church services. Hopefully you haven't had one in a while, but nevertheless, we know what it's like. Heaven is not going to be that for the believer. The believer will not be bored. He will not be wondering, well, what can we do next? Uh, what am we going to do tomorrow? Uh, he will not be going, well, I, I hope we can you know, change the place and spruce the place up a bit. It's going to be none of this. Why? Because all that will matter for the believer is God's presence. But the second thing as well in verse number 9, from the glory of His power, This is His majesty and His might. His glory. His doxa. This is all of His attributes, all of His characteristics. This is why it is not merely on that day just one attribute seen and that's it. You and I will know His presence in all that He is for all time and eternity. But this idea that it is from the glory of His power, it is that He alone is the one that has the only authority to take action against unbelievers. He alone is the one that has authority and sole authority to reward the believers. Not by works that they have done, but by the work of Christ, by His Son, and that He is able now through Jesus Christ to bless them forever. So as we bring this section to a close, we're not going to finish this up today. I know that this morning it's it's difficult to look at such, but we have to remember, let's step back for a moment. What were the Thessalonians struggling with the most? Persecution. They were facing day in and day out, literally fighting for their lives and fighting for their faith, dying for their faith, being jailed for their faith, even facing questions of their faith and a multitude of other issues. And here Paul says, don't you worry. 
persecutions and tribulations, they're going to come, but so will your reward. And so will the retribution against all those who have come against you, because when they've come against you, dear believer, they've come against Christ. God will both give retribution and reward to those who deserve it. We can praise God that you and I who know Christ will receive the latter. To receive the reward. And ultimately seeing Christ and coming along His side and ruling and reigning with Him in this earth at a second coming, it will be our reward. And there is there anything greater than the presence of being with Christ. Father, we love You. We want to thank You for this day. We're grateful that we can look at such a, a heavy passage. Lord, I pray that this would help my heart this morning to see the, the desperate need to preach the Gospel. Lord, there, there's no day like today and there's no... We're not promised tomorrow, Lord. We have today only. We have today. Today is the day of salvation, Lord. So for those of us that are saved today, God, may we rejoice in You and the reward that You have promised. And Lord, that ultimately we can trust You through no matter what situation we're facing. And Lord, even if persecutions come, we know and trust that You are working things out. And Lord, that one day we will be rewarded by Your hand. And Lord, that Your Son is our reward. Father, we ask that You prepare our hearts now and that we might worship You in spirit and in truth. Help us to fellowship one with another. Lord, that You would give us a sweet spirit of unity today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all.